welcome. We're glad that everyone could make it out this morning. Um, we are going to be in Genesis 15 this morning, but anytime we approach the text, we want to do so prayerfully and just letting the Lord guide us. So if you would please bow your heads with me and we will pray for our service this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for allowing us to gather together in your house. And God, we, we don't want to take that for granted. We know that there are so many places all across the world where Christians are persecuted and killed for their beliefs. And God, we're so blessed to live where we do and when we do. God, we, we ask that you would not let us take that for granted. And so as we come together this morning and read, study, and apply your word, we ask that it would all be guided by you. You've promised to teach us by your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would make that a reality for us this morning. And God, the only reason that we get to, to come to you is because of the blood that was shed on our behalf. And God, above everything else, we thank you for that, that amazing, wonderful sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Your son coming to earth, taking on flesh, and dying in our place. God, we never could do anything to deserve that, yet you loved us enough to reach down and bring us to you. God, we love you. And it's in your son's precious, precious name that we pray. Amen. Please open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 15. Last time, a couple weeks ago, we made it through chapter 14, and we were introduced to Melchizedek. Melchizedek, it said, was the king of Salem and the priest of God Most High. And we also spent some considerable time looking at Hebrews, where it also talks about Melchizedek. And the writer of Hebrews there uses Melchizedek to make the point that Christ supersedes the law. Christ is better than the law. And the priesthood of Melchizedek is better than the priesthood of Aaron. And at the beginning of chapter 14, a battle was described between two groups of kings. The rebellion of the subservient kings was crushed by the four kings from the north, those conquering kings, and the southern king's cities were plundered, and the loot and the people were hauled away. And Abram's nephew, Lot, was among those who were taken from those southern cities. And Abram decided to arm his men and pursue Lot's captors. The Lord gave Abram's enemies into his hands. He saw a great victory there. And it's interesting as you, you look into this account, after the battle, these men come out into the plain to meet each other. We have Abram, we have Melchizedek, king of Salem, and we have Bera the king of Sodom. And Bera offers to Abram all the spoils of his victory, all the material wealth 
that really he could probably imagine. But Abram refuses to take anything. Not even a sandal strap does he take from the king of Sodom. But to Melchizedek, Abram gives a tenth of everything that he has. He pays tithes to Melchizedek. And we talked about how that relates to Levi and the priesthood as the writer of Hebrews elucidates for us. We got to see Abram in action in chapter 14. But in chapter 15, we get to see his emotions. We get a glimpse into his heart and mind. And we see him struggling to accept what God has told him. And that's a place that we've all been. You know, we've all struggled at some point to accept what God has told us. We've all experienced the emotions that come with that struggle. And the Bible is clear that God has given us emotions. And we're intended to experience these emotions. And that's part of what makes us God's image bearers. Jesus definitely experienced emotions. And he showed them. He expressed them. Isaiah 53.3 says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And on three occasions in Scripture, it's recorded that Jesus wept. There's nothing wrong with emotion or showing emotion. But I know that that's a, maybe an uncomfortable topic for a lot of us guys. You know, we, we tend to shy away from emotion, and especially showing the emotion. How simple life would be if we could just do the thing that was logical, regardless of anyone's feelings. You know, sometimes I think about what a simple life it would be. And sometimes women can be on the opposite side of the spectrum there. Sometimes women let emotions have a little more power over them than they deserve. But emotions are not bad, and we shouldn't be scared of them. However, emotions are not the highest form of truth. God's word supersedes our emotions. It should take the prominent place in directing us, and it's the place where God talks to us. You know, sure, God can sometimes put an impression on your heart. Sometimes he does that, and I can't limit him in saying that he won't do that for you. But we have something that many people throughout history didn't have, and that is the sure testimony of God's written word. And so whenever I hear from God, 99.99% of the time, God speaks to me through his text. We can get alone with our Bibles, and alone is a good place to be, right? And we'll see that with Abram in chapter 15. We can get alone, and God can speak to us through the words that have been written on the page. Genesis 15, starting in verse 1, 
After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now towards heaven, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Now let's look back up at verse 1 now. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. After what things? After the things of chapter 14, that battle that we mentioned. After Abram gets this great victory over those conquering kings, God comes to him in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. What a cool thing to hear from God. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Why did God come after the battle and not before? Why did he ensure Abram that he was his shield after the fact? I don't know. It's God's timing, right? This is not the first time the word afraid occurs in Scripture, but it is the first time we see the phrase, do not be afraid. Previously, the voice of the Lord God called out for Adam and caused him to fear after he had sinned. It says that Adam was afraid. Now the word of the Lord comes to Abram and says, do not be afraid. And in this, we find a bold contrast between Adam, the first man, and Abram. Adam was the father of all men, especially as related to their sin. But Abram is called the father of all those who believe in Romans 4.11. Adam was covered by a fig leaf, but Abram was covered by God, his shield. Adam received a curse, but Abram received a reward. God said to him, I am your exceedingly great reward. And we know that Abram looked for a city whose builder and maker was God as a future reward. When God tells Abram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward, he's saying, I'm your protection, your shield, and your provision, your exceedingly great reward. I'm everything you need. There's nothing else that you need that I won't provide. And remember that Abram had relied on Sarai, his wife, to protect him when they went down into Egypt. 
he said, maybe you, you should say that you're my sister instead of my wife to protect me so that it may be well with me. And that didn't work out very well. But even in that time of Abram's lacking faith, God looked over him and God was ultimately the one who delivered both Abram and his wife from Egypt. Verse 2, But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. So at this time, God has still not fulfilled that promise to Abram of giving him a son. And Abram is struggling with God's timing here. He's struggling to understand, to kind of wrap his mind around it. From Abram's perspective, Eliezer, who is his servant, is going to be his heir because he has no one else to pass on his estate to. And Eliezer wasn't a bad guy. In fact, he was a good guy. He was a real good guy. And Abram depends on him, and he'll become very significant as we move forward. His name means comforter, interestingly. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Now, I I have no doubt that this was frustrating for Abram. He, he looks out at all of the things that he does have. You know, his whole estate, his houses, his wife, beautiful wife. And he has everything anyone could ever want, except for an heir to everything he has. That's frustrating. He's waited all these years for a child from God, but he hasn't yet been blessed with one. And now he's feeling the effects of his age and his wife's age. And I'm sure he's starting to despair. But God doesn't get frustrated with Abram and his struggling. In fact, God helps him try to understand the plan he has for his life. In verse 4, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, speaking of Eliezer, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now towards heaven. And count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Great words of reassurance from God there. God tells Abram again that he is going to have innumerable descendants. The first time that God really pressed this point on Abram, he used the illustration of the sand on the seashore. Number the sand. As many as the particles of sand are, so shall your descendants be. And now he uses the stars of the heavens. 
And I want you to notice this too. Verse 5, then he brought him outside and said. The insinuation there is that he took Abram alone. He drew him away from everyone else, alone with God. And he said, look now towards heaven. Count the stars if you're able to number them. A lot of times, and in many points in our lives, we feel alone. And I think that just as human beings, we can all relate to loneliness. No. And that's an emotion, right? That is a feeling based on our environment. If we're segregated out by ourselves, we feel alone. Is that a bad thing? Being alone is not a bad thing. It can feel uncomfortable, no doubt. Loneliness is uncomfortable. But when we look to the text, there are numerous examples of great things happening in people's lives when they're taken alone with God. This is case in point right here. God takes Abram alone and says, look towards heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your descendants be. One of the most remarkable examples of someone being alone and God working through them is John. The apostle John, the last of the living apostles, is exiled on the island of Patmos. And it's there that he receives that revelation of Jesus Christ. What we have is the book of Revelation. He was taken alone. He was literally exiled on an island. And God works with him. So don't be in a hurry. Don't be in a hurry. It's uncomfortable. I I understand. But when you're alone... That seems to be the time when God can really get through to you because there's no distractions. It's just you and him. And he believed in the Lord. Abram believed in the Lord. Now, look, it doesn't say Abram believed what the Lord said. You know, and there is the distinction there in the Hebrew. It says and he believed in the Lord, personally. It seems he's actually struggling to believe what the Lord has promised him in relation to his descendants. And that's supported by his actions in chapter 16. He's struggling. And you may have had this same conversation with God. Lord, I don't see how this is going to work out. You've promised things that seem too far out for me to even wrap my head around. But God, I believe in you. I know who you are, and I know you hold me in your hand. And at that moment, there was something of God that Abram rested in. He believed in the Lord. 
that was a place of rest for him. And the word believe means that you regard something as so dependable that you can put all your weight on it. You believe something. When you sat down in that chair this morning, you believed that it could hold you. You didn't approach it, I'm guessing, and kind of put a little bit of weight on it, you know, check it for its sturdiness, and then barely sit on it. Oh, okay, it's got 50% of my weight, and then 100%. Because you believed it. You believed it could hold you. There was no hesitation to put all of your weight on it because of the belief that you held. That's the kind of belief that we're talking about when Abram believed in the Lord, placed all of his weight on the Lord, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. This is the first time in the scripture that we have the condition for salvation clearly laid out in front of us, belief. There's no action on Abraham's part, just belief. This is not meritorious. Abram didn't do anything to deserve this. He believed in the Lord. He's leaning on the Lord, and he's able to rest in that belief. Verse 7 says, Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? An interesting question from Abram. He says, how shall I know that I will inherit it? See, he believes God, but he's looking for assurance. Assurance is something that, (laughs) I won't speak for all of y'all, but I still need assurance. I need assurance that when I die, I'm going to be with him, right? And hopefully, as we all progress in our walks with Christ, we become more and more sure of our salvation. The scripture says to work your own salvation out with fear and trembling because it is not a light thing. Our eternal destiny rides on the question, who is Jesus? Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? I believe it was Charles Spurgeon who said, you don't need to have assurance to be saved, but you do need assurance to be effective. Because without the assurance that you will spend eternity with Christ, how are you going to be effective in other people's lives in leading them to Christ? You don't need assurance to be saved, but you do need assurance to be effective. Verse 9, So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle 
and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Kind of a gruesome picture set before us. But this is setting the stage for what will happen when night falls. God making this covenant with Abram. And Jeremiah 34, verse 18, helps us to understand what's going on here. Jeremiah 34, 18 says, And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words, the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it. What's being set up here is the way that men in Abram's day would make a covenant with each other. They would cut the animals in two. They would join hands and walk in between those pieces in a figure eight. They would pass between the animals. And when you did this, you were basically saying, let this be our end if one of us breaks these, this covenant. It was a very serious occasion. And there was blood spilled and a promise made. And no doubt this is here a picture of the blood that was shed for the new covenant we have in Christ. And especially as this covenant relates to Abraham, the father of all those who believe. It's a picture of what we have in Christ and in this new covenant. And notice that God waits until it's dark. More waiting. It seems like poor Abe can't catch a break. God's always testing and exercising Abram's patience. And of course, the presence of those animal carcasses gets the attention of the vultures, right? Naturally. So Abram has to fight them off as he's waiting on God. And this is certainly a picture of Satan's attempts, the birds. It's very consistent throughout Scripture that birds are a picture of the enemy. This is a picture of Satan's attempts to bring us out of God's plan for our lives. He'll swoop in, or more accurately, he'll have one of his minions swoop in and try to wreak havoc in our lives. And while we're waiting on God's timing, we have to fight off those thoughts. Is this really what God wanted me to do? Am I really in the right place here? I'm just sitting out here in the middle of all these dead animals waiting for him. And that over there looks so much more promising than where I am. And, you know, sometimes it's all you can manage to just stay where God has placed you. There's a concept that I like to reference when we come across the word hippomone in the New Testament. Uh, this word means patience, but it's even richer than just patience. 
more accurately, it's an active endurance. It's not waiting at the bus stop for your bus to arrive. It's more like waiting at the bus stop in the pouring rain while someone's singing off-key into your ear, and it's 33 degrees outside. That's the kind of active endurance that we're talking about. The two roots that make the word hippomone mean under and to stay or remain. Together, this word describes the action of someone bearing up under a hardship. Bearing up under something. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 use this word. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Trials produce patience. Patience leads to completeness or perfection. And this picture of Abram fighting away the vultures is a great example of this kind of patient endurance. It's not a passive waiting. He wasn't sitting back reclining on a large rock waiting for God to do something. He was actively staying in God's will for his life. He was fighting off the vultures and guarding what he had, where he knew he was supposed to be. It's not a passive waiting, but an active patience. Now, look at what happens as it gets dark. In verse 12, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God is letting Abram in on a very significant prophetic event, the sojourn of his descendants in Egypt. During most of that time, they would be in bondage and slavery. It says, they will serve them. And they will afflict them 400 years. Now, there seems to be a fair amount of confusion surrounding this time frame of 400 years. Because Exodus 12.40 says that they sojourned in Egypt for 430 years. And then we get to Acts 7, verse 6. It says that they were afflicted in Egypt for 400 years. So how do we reconcile these timelines? Well, it seems to me that the text actually does this for us. You know, if you read closely, they're talking about two different things. 
Acts 7-6 and Genesis 15-13, where we are this morning, both speak of the time that the Israelites were afflicted in Egypt or under bondage. Exodus 12.40 speaks of the total time they spent in Egypt, their sojourn. It says, Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. There was a brief time when they were offered some latitude in Egypt. They were not oppressed. And that was under the Pharaoh that knew Joseph. Exodus 1 verse 8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. So it was that king that did not know Joseph who began to oppress the people of Israel. So there's really no conflict between the 400 and the 430 years. They're just talking about different things. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Of course, talking about the Israelites leaving Egypt. This statement sees its fulfillment in Exodus 12, verses 35 and 36. And this is when the Israelites leave Egypt with great wealth. It says, Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. That's the fulfillment of what God is telling Abram right here. And now speaking directly to Abram again, God says, Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. Now, God doesn't seem to be talking about Abram's biological father, Terah, who was an idol maker in Ur of the Chaldeans. He seems to be talking about the men who pioneered the faith in the ages before him. His fathers, Adam, Seth, Enoch, Noah. Abram will peacefully join their ranks in eternity. And God also says, you shall be buried at a good old age. We know that Abram lived to be 175 years old. That's a pretty good old age. And he began walking with the Lord when he was 75. That's when he actually left Haran and went down into Canaan, following what God had told him. So Abram walked with God for 100 years. Can you imagine the richness of that life? A hundred years knowing and walking with God. It's remarkable. But in the fourth generation they shall return here. Now speaking of 
Abram's descendants, the Israelites. After they're done with their time in Egypt, they return to the land of Canaan. And God gives a peculiar reason for delaying Abram's descendants taking the land. He says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Very interesting. And it's interesting and instructive to note how God measures time. Now, of course, he's outside of time altogether. He actually created what we experience as time. And so he's not bound by it, but he does relate to us where we are. And we are limited by time and space. So he does deal with time as we perceive it. And he says, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You see, God measures time morally, not by the clock and not by the calendar. He does this both corporately and personally with both groups of people and with individuals. Romans 1 speaks of unbelievers who knew God. They knew who he was, but they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So they didn't like to retain God in their minds. They regarded God as unimportant, and certainly didn't live their lives to please him in any way. And then in verse 26 of Romans 1, It says, for this reason, the reason that they didn't want to retain him in their minds, God gave them up to vile passions because they chose to ignore him. That's when he let them go. God measures time morally. And we see that here. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God wants to offer them more time to repent, turn away from what they were doing, the path that they were going down. And if you've been putting off a serious relationship with God, this should really scare you. And I hope that it does. Because if you keep pushing him away, there will come a time when you've rejected God's call to you one too many times. Is today the day you step into a relationship with your Savior? The scripture says today is the acceptable day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late. There is no way for us to know. But if there's a tug on your heart this morning, you have a chance to lay hold of the promise that God has made to all of us, that whoever believes on him shall have eternal life. We have that opportunity this morning. The Amorites had not yet reached the fullness of their iniquity in God's eyes. There was still time for them to repent before he finally said, okay, it's time to judge. And there will come a day of judgment 
for each one of us. You get to decide what you're going to be judged on. Are you going to be judged based on your works? That would not be a good day for me. Or are you going to be judged on the basis of the blood of a sinless, perfect man? The Son of God, who has completed everything necessary for you to spend eternity with the Father. And to be clear, I'm not saying that God will stop wanting you. God is long-suffering, willing that no man should perish. But there's a hardness that grips each one of our hearts as we continue to reject. And you may become desensitized to the tug of the Holy Spirit on your heart. That is a very sobering realization. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord God made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. A smoking oven and a burning torch passed between those pieces. Remember, Abram is completely passed out right now. He has nothing to do with this. This is God taking on this covenant with Abram. He waits until it's dark. He waits until Abram falls asleep. And then God passes between those pieces by himself. He took this covenant upon his shoulders and his alone. The only part Abram played in this was receiving the benefits of God's covenant with him. What an apt picture of the new covenant that was made with us through the blood of Christ. I'm so thankful that my salvation is dependent solely on the completed work of Christ, the work that he has done. If it depended on me, to be honest, I would blow it. I wouldn't make it. In John 10, verses 28 through 29, Jesus declares, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now, let me ask you a question. How could Christ promise that they should never perish unless he was the one who personally ensured that they would have eternal life? If it was dependent on anyone but Christ, how could he promise that they would never perish? 
You see, the eternal security of the believer doesn't hinge on our ability, but his. And it's a beautiful picture that he paints there in those two verses. He says, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So we we get the picture that we are being held in the hand of Jesus Christ. And he also says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So not only are we in the hand of Jesus Christ, we are being held in the father's hand. That's a firm grip. That can't be broken. And Christ can declare, they shall never perish. He's the one who made the promise, and he's the one who will keep it. Now, does that give us a license to sin? To do whatever we want? To live however we want? Of course not. Of course not. A saving faith will look like something. It'll be evident in how you live. And James tackles that head on. We won't venture into that discussion this morning, but read James. We see God here passing through these pieces alone. He takes this covenant upon himself. It's an unconditional covenant. In other words, unilateral. There's only one party of the two that has any responsibility in it. Abram was not a part of this. He saw it happening. What is the only way that this display could be made more vividly? What if God were to take on human flesh and to take on the due punishment for our sins? That would illustrate the concept God is trying to get across here even more vividly. And that's exactly what he did on a wooden cross some 2,000 years ago. Another unilateral covenant that was typified in his covenant with Abram. Verse 18, On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he goes on to list the people groups that they would take over. Notice what God says. He says, I have given this land. When God first spoke to Abram, when he was still in Ur of the Chaldeans, he said, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, now listen, to a land that I will, future tense, show you. Then when Abram had come into the land of Canaan, God reassures him and he, he says to him now, to your descendants, I will give this land. So it's still future tense, but now Abram vaguely knows the land that he will be given because he's come into it. And now here in chapter 15, God says to your descendants, I have given this land. Now God switches to the past tense to tell Abram of this promise that hasn't yet been fulfilled in Abram's eyes. 
But God sees the beginning from the end. He knows exactly what is going to happen. And what he says will happen is a surety. And by faith, we can treat the things yet future as in the past. They're a sure bet. God treats this land as if it has already been given to Abram's descendants because he has determined it will be so. To your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The borders of this promised land are laid before Abram. And God goes so far as to name the people groups that his descendants would dispossess. And this leads us into chapter 16, which is so rich that we're not going to try to cram it into this morning. But we will come to chapter 16 next week. It's the, the account of Hagar and Ishmael. You know, some of Abram's bad decisions are catching up with him. And we'll see how all of that plays out. Chapter 16 does support the idea that Abram is struggling with this promise that God made him. He believes in the Lord, and that was accounted to him for righteousness, but he has trouble wrapping his mind around how God is going to use his old body and his wife's old body to give them a son. There's no doubt that's hard for him. We'll see the difficulty of it as it plays out next week. For now, let's wrap up our study in a word of prayer.